Hello and welcome back to Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, guys. Today, we're going to jump straight in to a review and discussion about my thoughts and feelings and memories of a cult classic from the 1980s revolved around the magical, fantastical world of the Frank L. Baum books, the wonderful Wizard of Oz stories. Yes, you can see it coming now, guys. I am going to be talking about the creepy, the devilishly dark fantasy drama that is Return to Oz from 1985. Uh, it's directed by Walter Murch, who, for anyone who knows their film knowledge and facts, he is credited as being a sound designer in part, but for the majority of the time, he is a very famous, well-renowned film editor, American film editor, and he's edited and worked on such projects including Ghost from 1990 with Demi Moore and Patrick Swayze, The Godfather films, The Conversation, American Graffiti, pretty much anything that Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas worked on. You bet that Walt Murch was there as well. Uh, but at the end of the day, he's known for editing, but in this case, he took up the mantle of director. Uh, and this was kind of like a little passion project for Walter Murch at the end of the day to bring the Oz world to a new level and he is actually being quoted in several sources that i've read at least in saying that oh i wanted to make a darker version of Baum's stories uh, and make a darker version compared to the likes of the 1939 classic musical adaptation from mgm which was very you know it had its darkish moments but they were mild fantasy mild threat which weren't really they weren't really scary unless you were like a tiny child whereas in this case even though it was a film for kids, this was a pretty dark film. And we'll get on to reasons why it was a dark film and why I just love it to pieces later on in the episode. Uh, but let's get back to the basics of it. Return to Oz, released in 1985. It actually began production in 1980, so it was a good four-year journey in production. Uh, and then it wrapped filming in 1984, uh, eventually to be released in 1985. Directed by Walter Murch, as I already said. It's a dark fantasy film based on the uh, world of the Oz books by Frank L. Baum. And I'm just going to go quickly through the cast list of this. And then we'll get to what it's about, the scene highlights that I enjoyed, and little just thoughts and feelings that I had about the film. So the cast, I do apologise. Again, I'm not the best with some of these names, so I do apologise if I've ever pronounced any of these names wrong, but let's give this a go. So we have uh, Feruza Balk, who plays Dorothy Gale, and there's an interesting thing I'd like to point out about her and her likeness or not likeness to Judy Garland and why that was and why it wasn't the case that she didn't exactly it's the only thing that didn't quite match up in my head even as a child watching it um her look really as dorothy gale um but why it might have been the right decision as well but we'll come back to that later uh, we got nicole williamson that's a man by the way who plays a character called dr jb warley he also portrays the oz character the gnome king which we'll come back to in the plot development later uh, we have matt clark plays uncle henry uh, a young girl one of the only two child actors in this film so along with bulk along with bulk uh, we have emma ridley she plays a character well she doesn't have a name but there's a she's credited as being girl in hospital and Princess Ozma, and then we also have a voice cast with uh, a lady called Denise Breyer who voices a chicken called Belina. 
I know this is just getting weirder and weirder the more I say these names out loud, these characters. Uh, Sean Barrett plays a character called TikTok, or voice of it, and Brian Henson, he is the voice and also puppet, like the operator for the head of Jack Pumpkinhead. And Brian Henson, actually, you may know because obviously the name Henson does ring a lot of bells, especially in the world of puppetry. Um, Brian Henson, I believe from my research anyway, he's the current chairman of the Henson company uh, at the moment uh, and he is also the son of Jim Henson so this is obviously in the early days of learning his father's trade moving beyond the Muppets but still working within that remit of puppetry within the Henson company and showing that long-lasting relationship that Disney did have with the Muppets because uh, we had Disney's Muppets Christmas Carol which actually comes out several years after this actually in 1993 so you know this is one of the earliest starts of the Henson company making their mark on Disney properties that aren't the Muppets and it, generally nothing that's like related to the original stuff like Dark Crystal or Labyrinth which would come around about the same time and later on in the 80s and such but Brian Henson you know the fact that he's doing the puppetry on this and he's also the voice of Jack Pumpkinhead, a key character in this film, is just very impressive. Uh, and I've left, uh, and then finally also there's one more voice cast note I should make as well, uh, Lyle Conway, who voices a creature called the Gump. Again, I'll explain more when we get to that section of the podcast. Um, there are two people that I've left off of this list though, because I wanted to leave them till last. Now most of these names, I mean they might be known of the time, but there's two people, two women, who star in this film who to me, are the biggest names in this. And they're only supporting roles, but they definitely, like, when you see them, you can't unsee them. And that is Piper Laurie, who, and I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure Piper Laurie, if I remember off the top of my head, she's one of the main characters in David Lynch's, and David Lynch and Mark Frost's seminal classic TV show, Twin Peaks. And uh, I'm pretty sure she's also... It, and if this comment makes it into the episode, then you'll know that my research has prevailed and that I was correct and I didn't have to cut this out. But I'm pretty sure that Piper Laurie also plays the deranged mother of Carrie in the 1976 Brian De Palma adaptation of the Stephen King novel, Carrie. It's quite a small role for Piper Laurie, really, considering she's such a force really to be reckoned with in most things that she's been like you instantly recognize and once you know her from one thing you'll see her in many other things from the period and then on top of that you've got the likes of Jean Marsh who for me personally I know Jean Marsh for making at least two or three appearances in the world of Doctor Who from the 60s all the way up to the 80s and also star of BBC television's Upstairs Downstairs as well the original show and also the revival as well for you and just generally, she is the most evilest character. Now, she really does have great screen presence because she plays a character called uh, Mombi, but she also plays a character in the real world called Nurse Wilson. Uh, and I should note that Piper Laurie plays Aunt Em in this as well. So both important characters, but I would say Piper Laurie takes the step back, whereas Jean Marsh is definitely the wicked queen in her element. It's just the best thing that you could see in a villain like they needed to get a named actress to be the villain i mean we have the gnome king who is our main villain and he does have a great gravitas and he's a great actor but i don't recognize him from anything if i'd really looked him up properly i could probably find some information on him but at the same time i don't think it's possible so right now i'm just going to associate him with the return to oz 
but let's move on. So Return to Oz, uh, I would say, you know, we've got the cast. It's a fairly decent cast, really, to be honest with you. Uh, and then the story itself, again, it's very much in the traditional scale of what The Wizard of Oz does. Now, the one thing, because the books were in the public domain by 1980, Disney were able to get the rights to these publications and use the characters and all the intellectual properties from the Frank L. Baum books and make their own film. And in this case, it was this. They didn't actually do any other, or at least many other properties with... The Wizard of Oz, until around, well, until the 21st century when they did that film Oz the Great and Powerful with Mila Kunis and James Franco, which is debatable whether it was any good. Um, there are parts of that film that I enjoyed, but personally, even though this is the creepier version and it's done with like a lot less high tech technology, um, Return to Oz is definitely the better film because uh, it's not as saturated in CGI as that one was i mean this one is visual effects heavy to the extent that like you think whoa this is mad it's only 1985 but it's brilliant uh, and i'll get to more on the visual effects later but the film itself is a dark fantasy film if you're familiar with the 1939 musical mgm classic that is the wizard of oz then you'll notice that the film return to oz does mirror it in a remarkable way now the things with the MGM film, obviously, even though the properties of The Wizard of Oz are up for grabs, they could make this film, hey-ho, they had to purchase and buy the rights to use the ruby slippers in the film so that there was a connection with the original film. Because in the book, the ruby slippers are non-existent. The book actually states that they're silver slippers, um, but MGM, because it was Technicolor, and they were doing this experiment of going from black and white sepia-toned footage to a wonderful Technicolor world for this musical extravaganza. They needed something a bit more jazzy to lighten up the screen and really make audiences go, wow. So they made them ruby slippers and they trademarked them and they were owned by MGM because they made that their own. But so that there was a bit of continuity between the two films, even though they're not an MGM co-production because this was not done with any partnership with MGM at all, the ruby slippers were purchased by permission and allowed to be used in the film. So there was that sense of continuity. The other sense of continuity that happens in this film is the fact that we get the the mirroring of the real world, or at least Kansas, in the world of Oz. Now, in the original 1939 film, and you could say in the book it might be alluded to, but it's not really delved into too much, but the 39 film, we get... Uh, the likes of the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, the Lion. They are all portrayed by the same actors who play farmhands in Kansas on the farm that Dorothy lives on. And the same goes for the Wicked Witch of the West. She's played by the same actress, Margaret Hamilton, who plays an evil teacher, horrible neighbour woman that is really mean to Toto and tries to take Toto away from Dorothy and her family at the beginning of the film before she goes to Oz. Uh, and then the other thing as well, we get the bridge of um, Mr. Marvel. So the um, traveling magician, he is the same actor who plays the wonderful wizard of Oz 
in Oz himself. Um, there's a bit of confusion and weirdness there because he's actually a man from the real world as well. So, like, where does Oz end and where does Mr. Marvel begin? Who knows? Um, but that's a discussion for another time. But then that is mirrored in Return to Oz, where you get the likes of Jean Marsh, who, as I said already, she plays a character called Nurse Wilson. She's a nurse in a psychiatric sanatorium mental hospital. Uh, and then she also plays Mombi, or Queen Mombi, who's an evil queen villainess in the world of Oz who's under the command of the Gnome King and the Gnome King is portrayed by the same actor who plays a doctor who is the boss of Nurse Wilson so Gene Marsh's character uh, and he plays uh, the doctor in that sanatorium as well as the Gnome King both of them have evil intents in the real world and the Oz world, so we get that sense of marrying up of the two worlds. And then also, as I already mentioned, um, Emma Ridley, the only other child actor involved in this production, uh, was a one of the Oz royalty. So she was Princess Ozma in Oz, and she's just a random hospital girl in the real world. But again, there's a bit of blurring of the lines between who's real and who's not in that respect. So, you know, there's that nice connection showing that the inspiration from the MGM film is felt within the Disney 1985 film. And it's a nice little bridge, and the fact that it's made out that this film takes place after the events of The Wizard of Oz, or at some point, um, it's made quite clear that this film, at least in write-ups of it, that it takes place in the year 1899. Um, I'm not going to lie, when you watch The Wizard of Oz, the MGM film, it's very clear that they think that it's, or at least, I mean, I, I would say The Return to Oz sticks true to the source material because the books were all written pre-1900 going into 1900, whereas the MGM musical clearly defines The Wizard of Oz as being set in the 1930s. Like, you don't ever say it, but they put her, it's Kansas. Now, because Kansas is kind of timeless and it's away from, like, mainstream modernized world you, you don't get like like cars or anything like that as such referenced in the film if i remember correctly i don't remember seeing a car in the original wizard of oz but just bicycles and stuff like that i, I just see that the mgm studios wanted to represent you know the great depression and america and it's a metaphor for the american dream and you can read all into that what you will but it's very strange because on one hand, you've got this film, The Wizard of Oz, that's set pretty much in like a... You could argue it was in like the 19, like 10s, 1920s at the earliest, but generally it looks very 30s-ish. Um, and it could be the 30s because we don't actually see any existence of anything that defines it as being anything less than that. Whereas in The Return to Oz, we get to see horse and carriage. It's... Uh, and the... Uh, the gas lamps and everything. It's very much a story set in a Victorian style America. So although Victoria is more applied to the English side of things from the UK, so Queen Victoria, it's very much set in that 1899 setting, which most things that write it up say that it is an 1899 film. And if you look at the way the there's horse and carriage uh the way the lamps are lit it's very victorian it's very much of the 19th century into early 20th century rather than being established into the 1930s so we get 
to see this. It's opened up on the farm, but you know, timeline cons- inconsistencies aside, we open up, we see Dorothy. She's very clearly obsessed with the world of Oz still, and then she is so hell-bent on convincing her, everybody that Oz is real that her Auntie M and Uncle Henry are convinced that she needs some psychiatric help. So they take her, because what else do you do back in those days? You take a young child to a sanatorium for electroshock therapy. Like, electroshock therapy. I'm sorry, this film is just... It's a film for kids, and yet it's showing, oh, you better not start talking about fantasy, because you'll be sent to somewhere where they're going to put electrodes in your head. It's just so dark. Like, I don't understand. Like, it is a very dark thing for kids of the 80s to come to terms with, let alone a kid like, you know, growing up in the 90s, 2000s, who might happen to watch this on a repeat on TV, like I did. But Return to Oz, that's why it's a dark fantasy, because it's a fantasy. There's dark elements in the fantasy, and the tone of it is generally grim. But it's grim from the beginning. Like, the parents are, well, the aunt and uncle are convinced that Dorothy is mad, so they send her off to this mental hospital to be diagnosed and... They go through all of their adventures. We have references to the Tin Man, the Lion, the Scarecrow, all that. And then she ends up being left at this hospital with this doctor who's experimenting with electroshock therapy and Jean Marsh's character, the nurse, left all by herself in this hospital. That And there's clearly adults in the other rooms around her, other patients that are clearly older than Dorothy who, who are actually more mentally unwell than she actually is. Like... She's talking about a fantasy land that she probably made up in her head, most people think. Whereas there's people down the hallway screaming bloody murder. Literally, I, I just... The comparison... Why would you put a child under electroshock therapy? It's just beyond me. But it sets the film up perfectly because she's in there. She's locked away. She makes an ally. Uh, she, I think it's Halloween, I think. So she carves a pumpkin, which will become relevant later. And then she meets up with this girl, the girl in the hospital played by Emma Ridley, and they escape. They go outside, uh, they're running away from the doctor and the nurse. The nurse is the one that ends up chasing after them, and the doctor stays inside. And G. Marsh is chasing after these two girls, and they end up in this like swampy, sort of horrible, storm-torn foresty area with a bit of a river in it and Dorothy ends up getting knocked out and ending up in a crate of some description then all all becomes a blur and she wakes up in the land of Oz and somehow there's a chicken which is on her farm who can now talk because all animals can talk in the world of Oz even though in the original 1939 film and even in the books the the um animals from the real world don't talk like Toto it never any point does not talk like no moment do we ever hear toto go oh dorothy i I can talk now we can talk now no literally he just woofs the entire time it's just a normal dog whereas apparently chickens are a completely different variation of animals so if you get a chicken from the real world they can talk (laughs) i just don't get it it's hilarious but you move on with the story. So Belina, who's the chicken, voiced by Denise Bryant. It's a lovely, funny voice. It's a quirky character, so we'll go with her. Uh, she has somehow made it into Oz with Dorothy. Again, I don't know how she's made it there. That's the only thing I could say about this film. There's so many confusing elements to it. that, like, how did the chicken get there? 
and how on earth is she talking when Toto couldn't even talk when Toto came to Oz? Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, yeah, all animals can talk in Oz, but why is Belina so special? I, I still don't understand that to this day. And then they are in this, uh, I think they're in the Deadly Desert, it's called. Something that I think is referenced in the books itself. So again, a little bit more Oz mythology. They have to make it out of the crate and not step into the deadly quicksand where they get sucked, if they, they would get sucked in. And then they get spotted by some like weird animations in the rocks. Uh, and, and this is kind of, I think, where part of their visual effects really sold off well because there was these creepy faces that would just mold into the rocks and they'd disappear. And the effects that generally were done for practical effects for like the costuming and makeup and stuff, uh, it actually earned this film. This film did earn a Academy Award Oscar nomination for 1985 for the 58th Academy Awards uh, for best visual effects. Um, it ultimately lost um, out to a film called uh, Cocoon, uh, a Ron Howard 1985 American sci-fi comedy. Uh, but ultimately i think that some of the practical effects in this and visual effects were really impressive and really ahead of their time the way these creatures these servants of the gnome king as we get to know him they just mold and like they're on the walls and they change shape and shift and so fluidly like it's the sort of thing you'd do with cgi these days and it would look just cheap but back then it looked really good uh, but you see this adventure getting back to my point though they follow through you got Belina and Dorothy, they go on this adventure, they make their way to the Emerald City, they actually discover, we actually get a nod to the original where we see uh, the house, her original house, because obviously at the beginning of the film they're rebuilding the house that was broken and lost in the original film, um, which I find quite weird because again there's a bit of an inconsistency, if the house flew away, how on earth did she end up back in the house at the end of The Wizard of Oz, like and how is it still there? Does it, like, go for a time corridor thing? There's probably lots of scientific explanations or, like, science fiction explanations we could go into, but we'll unpick that later. I think, that, so the, the house from the original instance where she crashed onto the Wicked Witch of the East is still there, and the Yellow Brick Road is broken and destroyed, and it's absolutely desolate. Like, it just shows there's been some sort of dilapidation and something is wrong with the world of Oz, and that Dorothy has clearly been sent here to save it. And then we go forward, she meets, um, essentially my little thing here is, because although they are allowed to use the characters, they didn't include, and I think it's very good they didn't include the Scarecrow, Lion, and Tim Man in such a capacity like they probably would have done uh, in a direct follow-up in the sense that the way they would have done things now, oh, we've got to meet up with the old heroes. I quite like the way they did this they meet up gradually each one of these new people so we see actually versions of the tim man the scare we don't really see the scarecrow until the end bit of a weird creepy scarecrow if you ask me and the lion as well the lion and the tim man are actually frozen in stone they're actually been turned to stone like many of the citizens of oz because they make their way to the emerald city and they see these all these oz people have been frozen in time in stone there's some girls that are dancing in a group which all are missing their heads which is quite a dark concept and again that will become clear in a minute but instead of the scarecrow we get a character called jack Pumpkinhead, who i said was voiced and puppeteered partially by brian henson he's a bit bumbling and he's quite tall and he's just made of literally nothing he's like a scarecrow but with a pumpkin head on him and it turns out that gene marsh's mombi the witch 
has put some magic on him and brought him to life, as it were. And then we've got TikTok, who is a lot shorter, <laughs> a lovely wind-up, Hogsworthy-like character. He's meant to be part of the Royal Army of Oz, and that's based on the material from the books as well. Uh, but he is the substitute for the Tin Man. Uh, Belina is the chicken, is the substitute for Toto. You still got Dorothy, and then in substitution for the lion is the Gump. Now the Gump is basically a moose's head. I think it's a moose's head anywhere, or a Gump's head. Uh, whatever a gump is, but it's a moose basically, uh, put onto a chaise long sofa with palm tree leaf things as wings, and he becomes his own little character, his own little being, brought to life by some magic dust which Dorothy finds from Mombies, uh, the same sort of dust that brings Jack to life before the events of the film. Uh, and she ultimately has her own new group of friends who are just like the Tin Man, the Lion, and the Scarecrow. We do sort of have little questions of, all oh, what's happened to everyone? TikTok fills us in on the what happened and such. And eventually they go on a big adventure. They go with the Gump. They create this Gump and they escape Mombi's castle because they do get captured eventually. And they fly off to the mountain of the Gnome King. And they meet the Gnome King. They try to see what has happened to the world. And it turns out that it's all down to him. He caused Oz to go downhill and he used the ruby slippers to become the ruler of Oz and overtake it all and then he lost them at some point so he needs Dorothy's help to find the ruby slippers and also just to help him to gain control again and it turns out that he's not so much of a nice person and by the end of the film he is defeated You'll have to watch the film to actually get the proper gravitas of the story, but that's essentially what it is. Dorothy is shocked and scared into the world of Oz from this very fearful situation. I suppose you can say that these situations are caused by fear and generally traumatic experiences. So the cyclone in the original film is trauma that sends her, and she knocks her head, and she ends up going into the land of Oz. And then with the electroshock therapy, that's another example of a traumatic event that has caused her to go back into the world of Oz. But obviously the trauma is too much and then we discover that the world of Oz has been destroyed and deteriorated by something evil and dark that is the Gnome King. Classic hero comes back to where they once saved and it's gone downhill, they should have stayed and now they've got to save this world again kind of thing so they she comes back and she saves the day she makes new friends which are very much like her old friends but in a different guise uh, and then she defeats the gnome king at her, his own game so actually i will get on to what actually happens at the end of the film in a minute so i just want to go on to some key scenes then so i haven't told you much about the ending but there is a key scene at the end which i want to talk about a little bit in a minute things that i want to sort of go through i've already been through the opening already but i just want to talk about it in detail so we've got the likes of the opening so we see it's nice and sunny it's a beautifully like sunset day and you've got this farm it looks very barren very you know traditional for the time so it's set in 1899 and we see this kansas farm and we get used to this idyllic way of living in like you know really positive kansas filled america kind of thing if you whatever you want to call it and then we go from the light to the darkness. We go to this very weird Victorian-looking 
institution, this uh, it looks very nice and very stately and almost very much like the sort of the entrance to the building that's in Rocky Horror, where you get that lovely lavish sense of grandiose. And before you know it, Dorothy is taken away and then we go to this horrible clinical cinder block like atmosphere where it's almost very much like a prison really to be honest with you it is a mental institution at the end of the day and you know the it's interesting to note as well the early foreshadowing we have actors like gene marsh and um nicole williamson who reprise their appearance then in the film by playing other characters in the world of oz we also get a little hint and a little sort of reference to different characters so Dorothy makes a pumpkin. She makes a pumpkin and puts it on her windowsill. That is a clear direct reference to her meeting Jack Pumpkinhead. And then we've also got the electroshock therapy machine, which actually is, even though the machine doesn't cause much joy or happiness for Dorothy in this case, because it's literally shocking her brain to try and cure of any mental instability uh, that is actually also representative of the character tiktok because of the way that the doctor goes this is his eyes and this is like his mouth and this is his nose and then you get to see something that looks a bit scary to start with become something a little bit more happier as we go into the world of oz so everything is shined up with a little bit more of a bright look on bright outlook on things then we also have um the girl who becomes princess ozma or at least is princess ozma who helps dorothy escape and in turn dorothy helps her character emma ridley's character escape as we get into the film uh, from a imprisonment that she's been trapped in like a world of mirrors she's been trapped in a mirror by gene marsh's queen momby and i just think that whole opening sequence it's very claustrophobic we get shots of um, like looking up. So as the trolley, the 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 medical trolley bed moves along, and you get see like the ceiling and those like single like lamps. Again, it must it's like early electrics are working, even though there's like lamps being used as well. So it's a very weird use of like technology from that age and not that age. But we get to see these lamps, those single lamps, very much like a detective film that are put over the like the interrogation-based lampshades, and they're there really just freaky as they go by, one, 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 one by one, and you see the terror on Dorothy's face. It's a very well-lit piece of film. It genuinely is something that is terrifying. The electroshock therapy scene is just terrifying because, you know, who would want, in their right mind, would actually put their child or the child that they're looking after, like R.E.M. and Uncle Henry, why would you put them into that therapy? It's just, oh, it's just horrible. It's just terrifying. Um, but the fact she survives and gets out of it, I'm like, yes, you go, girl. <laughs> um, but then, ultimately, she escapes one fell and makes it her way to another. And the other thing I'd like to highlight, the next part that I love, is the henchmen of Queen Mombi and the Gnome King, and that is the Wheelers. Now, the Wheelers are basically people they're like humanoid people but they're all they they travel via their hands and their legs or their feet um, but they're all wheels so rather than having hands they've got wheels like blades they're like rollerblades in a way i don't know what it was about the 80s and convincing people that rollerbladed characters were somehow 
like scary and creepy and just generally a thing because i'm pretty sure they did that for the wiz so the um the motown version of the wizard of oz which featured diana ross michael jackson those guys and there was generally that essence that those kind of characters are creepy anyone on roller skates and also musicals in general even though this isn't a musical at all the rollerblade sort of aesthetic just continues on to, into the 80s and into the 90s <laughs> but um these wheelers they're grotesque they're they almost look kind of part machine part mechanical they look like they've just been like put together from bits of wire bits of grunge bit of metal like scrapyard pieces they are genuinely the most terrifying things ever and it's like they got they had lots of them they had lots of them and they were chasing you down, or at least Dorothy in this case, down this corridor, and that's how she meets TikTok, as she finds one place to hide from them with no way out until she uses TikTok to help her get out of the situation with the wheelers. But they are genuinely so creepy, very grotesque in appearance, but they're so iconic. And like, I'll post pictures of the wheelers when we get to our Instagram post as well. You'll be able to see them live along with this episode. But they are the servants of Mombi. They get treated very badly, but they're like grotesque mechanical beings uh, that are just so scary and they just taunt Dorothy as well they got like a weird personalities that are very unhinged uh, but I do like that it's a different like approach to it rather than going for the flying monkey side of things because the flying monkeys were iconic for the 30s but it's that sense of it's a musical you've got people dressed as monkeys it's the dancing side of things like it's very theatrical whereas this is very grungy and very dark so i understand that and i do appreciate that change and for the henchmen then the next thing i'd like to point out as well is mombi's castle which looks very pristine and lovely inside and then it gets to the part where there's a hall of heads yes you heard me right the hall of heads now the hall of heads is a creepy one because you know i mentioned that there was some residents some girls in the emerald city they had no heads they were turned to stone but they had no heads well these are the girls whose heads they are <laughs> because g marsh's character mombi she literally she takes people's heads and uses them for her own pleasure making herself look nice on different she uses different heads for different occasions and she even at one point wants to take dorothy's head and says oh yes that'll be suitable although i think it would be a bit weird if she used dorothy's head on her body because Dorothy's head is tiny and this does bring me to my my point that I made earlier is that compared to Judy Garland Dorothy in this is a lot smaller now in the book she's described as being a very like I think she's meant to be like a 13 14 year old girl or something like that Judy Garland is very clearly 18 in this well well she was 16 but she looks like she's like 16 17 in the original Wizard of Oz film but then you get you go from her who's like five foot something and you go to this girl that's like four foot nothing <laughs> you're like i know you're trying to i know you can't get judy garland i know it would be impossible and it would look weird because of the time and everything like that you know it just wouldn't work regardless of when she's alive when you did the film she would look older it would not work with all the will in the world but i suppose nowadays you could do like de-aging effects but with this one, they didn't even try and match her up to look like the same height as Judy Garland. They literally they dressed her up like Dorothy, almost. Dressed her a little bit differently. And then the, the same hair colour, the same plaits. The eye colour's similar in the actress they found. But then she's really short and she's really small, which I suppose works with like the height difference of the wheelers and it makes it easier for interact to interact with TikTok because he wasn't a very tall 
character but then i just i just think it's just weird <laughs> it's weird that you go from judy garland to this little girl uh but in the original source material if R walter murch is being faithful to her which he is dorothy's meant to be a young girl not this attractive looking young woman which mgm i suppose were doing they were making her look more attractive than she needed to be i suppose because everything in mgm was all about the glitz the glam and the how pretty you looked even though she was only 16 at the time of the wizard of oz they were very much about the glamour in hollywood whereas in this case it was a little bit more dark more grungier and a little bit more faithful to the source material so i do think that it was the right choice but i still think if you're going to connect the two films together it's weird that she one minute she's judy garland the next thing she's like she's a little little young girl who's just tiny but nonetheless, that's a little thing to mention. But I think the head, if she took, Monby took her head, it would have looked a little bit weird. Uh, but yeah, it's just the fact that you see the whole scene where the heads all wake up. Like, they all sleep independently. And they don't have their own minds. They have the mind of Monby all together. And they all wake up and they're all looking at her. And it's just really, the visual effects, that was so impressive of how they did it at the time. Like, it's, I'm guessing it was remote controlled or, well when they had the heads off of the stands of remote control, but I'm guessing they all had to have the actresses stood in these cupboards with their heads there, just acting like they were just heads rather than heads with bodies and everything. But, you know, that was an impressive scene from a technical point of view. And then the other scene, and I'll get to this as well, is the scene that I was going to talk about, the final scene. And that is when the Gnome King, he meets Dorothy, gets them in, and he sends all of them off in different directions through these little portals to find stuff and to help find i think it's the scarecrow because the scarecrow's been taken hostage basically and they all fail their tasks they all have three chances to find the scarecrow uh, and they all seem to fail the gump jack Pumpkinhead, TikTok, they all fail until dorothy goes in and she ultimately finds all of her friends and the scarecrow um, but the reason behind this is that he somehow ends up with the ruby slippers again and the more the oz people turn into these different because they get turned into objects basically and then dorothy has to find these objects and say oz and makes them back into who they are but she has to find the object and she has i think it's two wrong attempts before the third one is you know she's close to losing so all her friends have been turned into items in this big massive collection like this room filled with like jewels glasses all sorts of things and then by each bit the gnome king is becoming more human and we're getting to see the actor more uh, rather than him just being a face in the wall and being an animated face like his minions that we see in the rocks in the deadly desert at the beginning of the film and he ultimately becomes really evil and a little more grotesque but still grotesque and it the makeup team did a really good job on it like he's very scary and very intimidating all black and white but gray like rocky in effect and then she goes in and little spoiler alert here but it's all the green things she's looking for the green items is what she has to find and she goes oz and they turn back into their original selves but they get in trouble when the gnome king gets really angry with them about the fact that they're actually winning his game and they're passing the tests and everything and he's being defeated basically and then at the end of the day the use for belina the chicken becomes very obvious and that's because the gnome king has some weird allergy to eggs who ever knew that eggs could defeat a rock monster but yeah literally an egg popped out of her and into his mouth 
and ultimately killed him. Don't know why Egg has such an effect on Rock, but that's something that happens in the world of Oz and something that we'll have to answer on another day. But then we learn that Ozma was imprisoned by Mombi and because of everything going wrong, Ozma is then freed and she becomes the rightful ruler of Oz. Dorothy is asked to stay and she doesn't want to, but Melina the chicken, who apparently can talk, is now going to stay with Ozma as her little companion. She's got a cute little Oz necklace, which I think is quite sweet. And the Scarecrow, I want to say, when the Scarecrow is found in that little test by the Gnome King, his face is weird because it's like his voice is coming out of him, but the mouth's not moving. It's not like the Scarecrow of the 39 film where the actor's face was being used behind a mask and you could see the mouth and the eyes. No, 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 no. No, this film goes as far as to just sticking a mask cover hat thing, like an actual scarecrow, over his head, the poor actor's head, and literally he has to be like really animated and really moving, like C-3PO, because you can't see his mouth moving. And it's almost just, it's the eyes, it's the fixed nature of the eyes, they're just so creepy. Like there's a bit where the scarecrow goes, oh Dorothy, oh, and hugs her. I just think it's dead creepy. <laughs> like the gnome king and the wheelers are creepy but from a good horror aesthetic that is just point blank scary like gene marsh is a happier person than that as Mombi. the heads were better than that like i do not understand it at all but hey ho we'll get there in the end <laughs> um but is it a kid's film at the end of the day i mean it's meant to be a family film but it's very dark very grotesque it shows the Emerald City as being destroyed and decapitated by all this evil that's been going on whilst Dorothy's been gone. Just as evil as the electroshock therapy that these adults clearly thought was a good idea to inflict on a poor child. But hey-ho, it's a good film overall. And at the, the, the end of the day, the opening sequence is harrowing, but it sets you up for the adventure that's to come. And it makes you know that this isn't just going to be like the 1939 Wizard of Oz. It actually does a good job in setting the tone from start to finish. It means it doesn't mislead you. Some films mislead you really badly, whereas this one does not. That's all I really have to say, to be honest with you. If I was going to rate this, personally, I will always rate this one 5 out of 5. But if I was going to be critical, I would say a solid 4 out of 5, merely because of some of the elements of the plot that don't make sense. Like, why does Belina talk? How is that possible when it doesn't happen in the other one? The inconsistency in the height of the actress that plays Dorothy. Like, it's little things, really annoying little things. But at the end of the day, I think this film is a true gem and i look forward to if anyone's listening from the collector's blu-ray community you know anyone out there we need at least in the uk because i'm sure the us have had a blu-ray release with extra features but we need a collector's edition of this film right now and i mean it because we do need this film because it is it's weird it's wacky it's a cult classic and we celebrate cult classics, ultimately. We look back at these things that weren't appreciated at the time or were only just about appreciated, and they were really gold. Like, they were gold dust, and we didn't know we had it until we review them to this day. So there's my little little talk about the Wizard of Oz Universal, the return to Oz. And I'm just thankful for you guys to for joining me on this journey. And it's something that I might revisit again. Who knows? Um, if you'd like to hear a bit more about my thoughts on the Wizard of Oz universe in the 
world of cinema, TV, books, anything like that, uh, just give me a message on the Take 97 Instagram. I might even do a review of Oz the Great and Powerful as we get later on into the show somewhere down the line uh, because I've done The Wizard of Oz, I've done this. The Wicked movie's coming out in 2024 as well, at least part one is, and then part two will come out in 2025. So I'm interested to see how well that does because I do adore the musical. Um, the stage show is brilliant, so I'll let you know my thoughts on that. It looks like it could be good, but then at the same time, yeah, it's got Jeff Goldblum as the wizard, which is a very good idea for casting. But I'll see how I feel about Ariana Grande's performance when we get to the film. But for now, guys, that is a wrap on Take 97, the Return to Oz edition of the podcast. And I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you very much, guys. I'll see you later. Bye bye.